From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, June 22nd. I'm Marco Werman. Muslim Brotherhood supporters occupy Cairo's Tahrir Square. They vow to stay there until election results are released. Also advice for Syria's opposition from a Serbian non-violence activist. And later, the dance craze sweeping Ghana, where daily life activities dictate the moves. He goes through the motions of doing his laundry, hand-washing it, and then wringing the water out, ironing it with a, with a flat iron, putting it on, doing the buttons. And the whole move is just incredible to watch. So that's the wash and wear. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egyptians are still waiting to find out who their next president will be. Both candidates who competed in last weekend's runoff election are claiming victory. They represent very different factions in Egypt. Ahmed Shafiq is a retired Air Force general and the last prime minister under ousted leader Hosni Mubarak. Mohamed Morsi is backed by the Muslim Brotherhood, which is calling for continued demonstrations against military rule. The world's Matthew Bell has the latest from Cairo. Once again, Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood proved something today. The Islamic group knows how to put people on the street. Hundreds of Brotherhood supporters camped in Tahrir Square last night, and the crowd swelled into the tens of thousands for Friday prayers. The imam gave a highly politicized sermon. He denounced the ruling military council's latest moves to consolidate its political power, and he called on the generals to hand over authority to the winner of last weekend's vote. If Ahmed Shafiq is declared president, one man tells me, that's against the will of the Egyptian people. They want Mohamed Morsi, he says. We'll have a second revolution, another man chimes in. Several people I talk with say they're ready to revolt again if they must, but mixed with that show of resolve, there are also signs of acceptance that the Brotherhood only has so much political leverage. There will be problems, this man tells me, even if Morsi is named president of Egypt. He won't have any authority over parts of the state, including internal security or the army. Morsi will have to compromise, he says. In other words, the new president would have to cooperate with the ruling generals who've been running the show in Egypt since the fall of Hosni Mubarak. There are signs that the process of accommodation is underway already, says Joshua Stacker. He's an Egypt expert at Kent State University. He was here with the Carter Center as an election monitor. The Muslim Brotherhood is a very pragmatic organization, and I believe that they'll end up cutting a deal with the military over the presidency Uh, in exchange for their ability to continue to struggle for another day. Stacker says the Brotherhood would prefer to continue that struggle electorally, not just in the streets, because the ruling military generals, he says, 
are still the most powerful political actors in Egypt. They're the only force in this country that has the ability to offer ultimatums to all the other political forces in the country while still maintaining options. They've structured to get buy-in from the population, get buy-in from social forces, while at the same time marginalizing undesirable social forces like revolutionaries. What's clear is that the Brotherhood can't put much pressure on the military all by itself. It would like to reach out to other revolutionary forces. Mohamed Morsi held a news conference this afternoon. Appearing alongside him were representatives from various political factions. Morsi called on all Egyptians who support the revolution to take part in nonviolent demonstrations. As a show of his willingness to work with allies, he vowed to appoint non-Brotherhood people to top positions in his government should he become president. Morsi's rival for the presidency is Ahmed Shafiq, who has also spoken out ahead of the Election Commission's announcement on the official vote count. Shafiq says he is confident he'll be declared the winner this weekend. Everything happening in the square right now, he charges, is an undemocratic threat to influence the outcome of the presidential election. Whoever becomes president, what is clear is that deep divisions in Egypt will remain. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. In Egypt, it's the future of the revolution that's at stake now. But in Syria, the revolution is very much in the present tense. Today, U.N. envoy Kofi Annan called for influential nations, including the U.S., Russia and China, to increase the pressure on both sides in Syria to end the violence. Speaking in Geneva, Annan said more cooperation among U.N. Security Council members is urgently needed. Members of the same organization are taking initiatives, national initiatives, which are undermining the process. And if we can get them to accept that it is only by working together that we can help improve the situation and also help the Syrians, and that if we continue the way we are going and competing with each other, it could lead to destructive competition and everyone will pay a price, most of all the innocent Syrian people and the region. Annan also mentioned efforts to convene an international conference on Syria, a meeting that would not be limited to Security Council members. We are discussing the composition and other aspects of the meeting, but I have made it quite clear that I believe Iran should be part of the solution. It's been nearly a year and a half of violence in Syria. The death toll is estimated at more than 15,000. It's hard to imagine how the conflict there could ever end peacefully. Sergei Popovich has been closely following events in Syria, as well as the whole narrative of the Arab Spring. You could also say the Arab Spring has been following him. Popovich was an activist in the movement that led to the ouster of Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic in 2000. In recent years, he's been advising nonviolent democracy activists the world over. He last spoke with us about developments in the Middle East last year in the early throes of the Arab Spring. Sergei Popovich, nice to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Nice being on your show. There's a lot to catch up on because when we last spoke with you, Egyptian dictator Hosni Mubarak had been ousted following a brief nonviolent uprising. President Ben Ali had been rejected in Tunisia and violence was raging in Libya with Muammar Gaddafi still in power. But the ousters did begin to follow this pattern. Not so in Syria. What are democracy activists supposed to do now in Syria with all reasonable options seemingly tapped out? 
Well, I mean, there is this great misconception that there is a certain level of violence where actually you cannot confront it with a nonviolent struggle. They should think about this as a box match with Tyson. The last place you want to confront Mike Tyson is a boxing ring. This is exactly what Free Syrian Army is trying with their pathetic attempt to challenge one of the most serious armies in the Middle East. I'm sure that the progress for Syrian uprising lies in understanding that you really need to escalate your tactics from the protest and persuasion into the non-cooperation. And I think this is where the biggest vulnerability of Assad's regime lie. So uh, clarify for us, are you suggesting, I mean, you're a nonviolence activist. Are you suggesting fighting back? I'm absolutely against any violent action because of a few reasons. First of all, violence justifies violence. Second, it increases the level of risk of the participation and numbers are what really counts in nonviolent struggle. Violence is absolutely no mean changing the regime. Uh, history actually tells us that there is this tremendous record called Why Civil Resistance Work. It's a great study by two young uh, American academics. It examines 323 cases of violent and nonviolent campaigns. Results are impressive. In the case of violent uprising, you have about 26% of chances for success. In the case of nonviolent uprising, your chances are 53%. Should we as Americans never have had our revolution? I think you as Americans don't examine enough on the nonviolent aspects of your revolution. I mean, you're sitting in Boston, and the Boston Tea Party was the iconic image there. And there were so many strikes and boycotts and non-cooperation with British government. But, you know, there are so many movies obviously made about the people running around and shooting each other, which was important but not so important part of the revolution. So, yes, you learn from your revolution. But the narrative of the struggle, as I understand it in Syria, is that pro-democracy activists began their demonstrations and then Assad fought back uh, relentlessly. And it's been a mess ever since. How do you get those pro-democracy activists back in the street at this point? You don't want them back in the street. What do you want them to do? Being in the street is high-risk tactic of concentration. You come there, you're exposed. Instead of that, I mean, what if people... Like in Chile under Pinochet, which is another very oppressive regime, Chile, people yeah. were going on the yes, people were going on the street. They were going on strikes, and then the military would come and just shoot them. So, what if people decide, like in Chile, to walk half speed and drive half speed? Immediately, this bubble of fear fell down because people recognized there are many, and they're doing the thing which is very difficult to sanction. In the case of Syria, I think we have a deeper problem, and it's unity. If opposition in Syria cannot find the common vision of tomorrow, which will include Sunnis, Shiites, Alawites, and Christians, it will never win. I can't let you go, Sergio, without asking you, given that death toll in Syria, and it continues to increase, do you oppose foreign intervention? I always oppose foreign military intervention. I have at least two good reasons for this. Uh, The first one is scientific. The same study, why civil resistance work, examines different cases of military and nonviolent uprising. In the case that the change was brought by the military uprising or foreign military intervention, if you make an intersection through the society five years after the change, you have about 4% of chances to end up in democracy and stability. The reason for this is that people are not participating in this, but the foreign airplanes are bringing the change. And then when you look at the nonviolent uprisings, there is about 46% chances that the people like Egyptians will end in a 
democracy and stability. Another one is deeply personal. I'm a Serb. As you know, your country bombed my country. Mm. My mother was almost killed. She was a TV journalist in the bombing of Serbian national TV, which was for some reason proclaimed as a legitimate military goal. And I know that bombing didn't brought down Milosevic. It was the popular nonviolent movement which brought down Milosevic. Bombing actually only strengthened Milosevic because when people are in trouble and oppressed from the outside, everybody rallies around the leadership. So it doesn't bring democracy and it doesn't bring the bad men down in most of the cases, but it kills people. Well, one thing that seems to be clear in Syria is that the options are not clear. I can't agree more. But there are definitely models we can look at, and this is really inspired struggle. I mean, when you look at the things you can really help these people with, there are not only two meals in this refrigerator. I mean, international community always reaches for sanctions. And then, you know, second is foreign military intervention. There are so many different things where you can really successfully support the nonviolent movement with knowledge, with materials, with a safe online platform, with, with all of the different things. So, so I would really love international community at least get half creative as these young people in Syria. Sergio Popovich, the executive director of the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action, or CANVAS, he joined us from Washington. Sergio, thank you very much indeed. You're more than welcome. One Egyptian man who got very creative in support of the Arab Spring is Bassem Youssef. He's a heart surgeon turned online satirical news host, a kind of John Stewart of Egypt. We first met Youssef here on the program a little over a year ago. John Stewart has half an hour. He has celebrities. He has like his own cast of, uh, of fake um, reporters and cameras. All that. We, we do it at home using YouTube material. But on Facebook and on Twitter and on the Internet, people are already calling me the John Stewart of Egypt, which, wow. We are kind of like the ghetto virgin of John Stewart. Well, last night, Yusuf got to experience the real thing. He was Stewart's guest on The Daily Show. My guest tonight, he is a heart surgeon who also hosts a satirical news program in Egypt called Al Bernamik. They talked about their differences and similarities. Uh, Jews and Muslims, there is tension amongst the cultures at times. But one thing we probably share is that uh, going to your mother as a heart surgeon and saying, yeah, I think I'm going to be a comedian, would be a problem. And Yusuf more than held his own. We're not very much different. No, no. I think you look better in a suit, but other than I that, know. I think we're the same. It's an Armani. Look at you! Very sharp. I had to pay for it. He gets his for free. Give it 14 years, my friend. It'll yeah. come. It'll come. Bassem Youssef says his program will soon move out of his living room to become the first Arab political show with a live studio audience. In the meantime, you can see his current show, plus his appearance with Stewart on The Daily Show at theworld.org. Just ahead, Fidel Castro launches the Haiku Revolution on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Our next story is from the One Step Forward, Several Steps Back department. It's about an effort in Europe to encourage women to become scientists, but it seems to be backfiring. Listen to this.
It's a girl thing. Science, it's a girl thing. I thought at first this was a recruitment video for the cosmetics industry, but it's actually a new video spot produced by the European Commission that's trying to lure young women to the sciences. Problem is, well, the world science correspondent Ritu Chatterjee joins me. Ritu, what is the problem? Well, Marco, in short, it objectifies women and doesn't do any justice to portraying science. And the message seems to be that science is girly and full of lipstick and makeup and pink. You know, you see these three skinny, young, very attractive girls walking in high-heeled shoes, sort of taking this guy peering through a microscope by surprise. And he's like, he has this expression on his face that goes, what are girls doing here? And then you see the women sort of doing science, writing formula on a wall, uh, handling solutions, blowing kisses and looking quite stunning. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a YouTube video with so many uh, dislikes. It, it seems to have hit a nerve. Yeah, and for obvious reasons. A friend of mine wrote on her Facebook page that the video made her want to scream. And someone else remarked on Facebook that the video should have been named Boys Will Like You Science. Some people (laughs) thought it was a big joke. And really, I haven't seen anything positive said about it, and quite justifiably so. Really, girls, boys will like you if you discover hydrogen. That's the number one element. That's right. That's the one discovery they make in the video. (laughs) What age group was the European Commission targeting with, with this spot? And is there any justification at all for casting the sciences to women this way? So this is part of the European Commission's Women in Research and Innovation campaign. And they have good reasons to want more women in science. Women, after all, are grossly underrepresented in the science all over the world. You know, they're right in trying to encourage girls to be scientists. About the age group, they're targeting 13 to 17-year-olds because that's the age group when boys and girls are making important career choices. But had they looked at the research, they would have found that Boys and girls don't really differ much in how much they like or dislike science and technology as career options at that age. It's much later in their careers that women sort of start to drop off, especially after graduate school. So ironically, this could actually repel women from the sciences, this is video spot. Exactly. And in fact, there is at least one study that New Scientist magazine referred to in their review of this video. And the study was done by a group of psychologists at the University of Michigan, where they showed this video to 11 to 13 year old girls. The videos had successful women scientists being having either feminine, overtly feminine characteristics or gender neutral characteristics. And the girls actually disliked science more when the scientists in the videos were more feminine. So you're right, this could be repelling girls from choosing a career in science. The world science correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Hmm. I wonder how scientists of any gender would do with this new dance out of Ghana that I'm about to tell you about. The dance is called Azonto. And it calls for dancers to sort of act out their occupation. It's all the rage in Ghanaian communities in the U.S. and Britain. The BBC's Alex Jacana just recently returned to London from the Ghanaian capital, Accra. Alex, tell me how and when Azonto started in Ghana. Roughly 12 months, about a year ago, is when people really began to talk about this dance called Azonto within Ghana. And that's just me. Um, You know, the guys who started the dance would probably say otherwise. But when I went to Ghana and met this guy called Gus Miller, uh, one of the pioneers of the dance, he took me to the actual place where it sort of began its evolution. 
And it had many names before it, it became a zonto. And the most recent name was apa, which mm. means to work. Basically, the dancer uses it to, to tell people who are watching or with whom he's socializing or she is socializing uh, what they do for a living. So incorporating into the body movements, uh, a hammer if you're a carpenter, or in your case, Marco, I guess it would be a sort of hand motion of a microphone from your mouth to the interviewees. <laughs> I don't know how I would do that, but we'll, we'll think of a way. <laughs> exactly. And so that they took it on from there and, and incorporated these moves. And so it, it then they called it Azonto, this dynamic contemporary form of the dance. And it, it comes from this street and fishing community in Jamestown, a, a suburb of, of, of Accra. And it's from there that it sprung and uh, diaspora communities were so captivated by it. They made this great music video, that music that you're hearing right now in the background. And that is what really flung it across the world. And tell me about the song that we're hearing. Was there one song that triggered Azonto? Well, uh, you see, that's the thing with the internet. You can never really know. But the one song that I know many people hear and quickly associate with Azonto is this very one that we're hearing, which is Azonto, done by a UK-based artist called Fuse, featuring Ghanaian rapper Tiffany. Since this dance started in fishing communities, I mean, those jobs there are pretty visual. Nets and rods, you know, those motions are very dance-friendly, but... I might imagine like accountants would have a tough time doing their Azonto dance. What what profession seems to offer the best version of Azonto that you've seen so far in Ghana? I've got to say, um, the guy who was teaching me did a pretty convincing move of uh, a cameraman. And the carpenter, mm-hmm. I guess that one's easy. You can sort of imagine him moving back and forth, With swinging saw, that hammer, yeah. exactly, saw, saw, or, yeah. a ha- or hammer or something like that. And so those were two professions that I thought were pretty cool. I got to say, you know, the last 20 years or so, uh, from Ivory Coast to Congo and including Ghana, dance crazes seem to revolve around sex and the simulation of sex. Why a dance about your profession? I mean, does it say something about the importance of jobs and work these days? I guess what makes it what it is, is is when you trace the roots, given that it, it didn't start off as a zonto, but rather it was a communicative dance, and these um, young men and women in these communities just decided to have fun with it and to change it. Because, you know, what they're doing now is they incorporate other tasks into the move. So, mm. This guy showed me how to do a, there's a move they call wash and wear, which is basically he goes through the motions of doing his laundry, hand washing it, and then wringing the water out, and then uh, ironing it with a, with a flat iron, pressing it, and then putting it on, doing the buttons. And the whole move is just incredible to watch. So that's the wash and wear. Right. I guess it's best to not overthink Azonto. It's just so much fun to watch. And uh, we'll have a sampling of Azonto moves on theworld.org, including, uh, Alex, your BBC video report on Azonto, and a few of my world colleagues showing uh, their fancy footwork, what they do for a living. The BBC's Alex Jacana, just back from Accra, speaking with us from London. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Marco. Thank you. I hope you'll be in that video as well. I, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Twist your fingers, you can wave and say hello, low, low. Make a fist, then you can hit them with a blow, blow, blow. No balance, that's how you do a zoom, zoom, zoom. Let me see you go. Okay, fine. I am in that video. You can see it at theworld.org. 
We want to see you dance your occupation too, though. Take some video, cell phone clips, totally fine, and email them to pritheworld at gmail.com. That's pritheworld, one word, at gmail.com. We'll upload them at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Guatemala's past is on trial, but few in the country dwell on it. And later, why it's so hard to describe the current U.S. policy toward Latin America. Everyone that I talk to, including my Latin American friends and acquaintances, say, what do you think the Obama policy is toward Latin America? They don't know. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's up to the jury now. The 10-week trial of Norwegian mass killer Anders Breivik came to a close today in Oslo. Breivik admits murdering 77 people, many of them teenagers, in a bombing and shooting rampage last July. The question for the jury is whether he's insane or not. Prosecutors say yes. Breivik's lawyers argued he's not. The BBC's Lars Bivanger was in the courtroom today and joins us now. Lars, why does Breivik want to go to prison and not to a psychiatric ward? Well, he has said that the entire reason for carrying out his attack last year was to spread his political message. And his political message is an extreme right political ideology in which he envisages the Western world and Europe and Norway in particular being overtaken by Islam and multiculturalism. It's very difficult to get your head around for the normal person, if you like. But he says that if he's found to be insane, all his work will be in vain. It will be reduced to the ramblings of a madman and his actions will be the actions of someone who's, who's crazy. Uh, of course, it's, uh, it's difficult for a lot of people to see it as anything but... But that is his argument, and he uh, he uh, has even said that he will appeal any sentence which will find him insane. And in court today, Breivik apparently read a prepared statement. W- was that essentially the thrust of what he was saying? It was, uh, and uh, it, it became quite bizarre in, in parts. He was uh, putting up as, as examples of how our culture, as he says, is being uh, threatened by using examples like sex and the city, where promiscuity is an issue, he said. It is a shame, he said, that we should be back to the values of the 1950s and the cultural conservatism, as he puts it. It sounds sounds a bit rambling when you are thrown into it, but if you read his manifesto and if you listen carefully to, to what he says, there are people out there who share his views. And that was the argument very much of the defense. They said he is not alone in saying this. He's alone in acting on it, but he is not alone in saying it. Therefore, he is not mad. He's basically representing a view which is out there 
And uh, the only thing that separates him from everyone else thinking this is that he killed 77 people. So what was the reaction in the courtroom to this man who may or may not be insane? When, just before Breivik was due to start his uh, final address in court, a large group of uh, survivors and families stood up and walked out. They said that uh, they had heard enough now from the man, and they've heard all the arguments from the defense and the prosecution. They'd listened to the forensic psychiatrists at length, and they've also heard a lot of harrowing evidence from the survivors of the Utah massacre and the uh, the car bomb. And they felt that listening more to Breivik now was not necessary, and they also obviously wanted to show him that he does no longer matter to them. When is the verdict expected, Lars? The verdict is not expected until the 24th of August. And uh, this is because the five judges here will need quite a lot of time to consider all the material which has been presented throughout these 10 weeks. It's been a massive case and a massive evidence load. So they will take uh, a good two months to consider the verdict and uh, at the end of that, we will know whether Breivik is found to be sane and sent to prison or if he is found to be insane and locked up in a psychiatric institution. The BBC's Lars Bavanger in Oslo, thank you so much. You're welcome. Another high-profile trial is happening in Guatemala. The defendant is former General Efrain Rios Montt. He was Guatemala's military dictator in the early 1980s. He's now facing prosecution for war crimes committed under his command. But as John Otis reports, even if the former dictator is convicted, it's unlikely to bring about national reconciliation in Guatemala. After seizing power in a 1982 military coup, Rios Montt was blunt about the coming violence. We are going to kill, he said in this 1982 interview, but we are not going to assassinate. Guatemala's civil war between government forces and communist rebels lasted 36 years, but Rios Montt's 17 months in power comprised the most brutal period. A UN Truth Commission found that nearly half of the war's human rights abuses occurred during Rios Montt's first year, yet he was never held responsible. The war finally ended in 1996. By then, Rios Montt had been elected to Congress, which gave him immunity from prosecution. But this past January, Rios Montt finally resigned from Congress at the age of 85, and prosecutors pounced. He's now under house arrest. No va en contra de la vida. Va a favor de la vida. In this Guatemala City courtroom, Rios Montt and several of his former military aides are being tried for genocide and war crimes. Prosecutors contend that Rios Montt's troops unleashed a campaign of massacres and rapes in northern Guatemala designed to eliminate the region's Ishil Indians. Army officers accused them of harboring Marxist guerrillas. One survivor who has been attending the trials is Edwin Khalil. He was only six when troops burst into his village looking for rebels. Khalil says they executed nine members of his family. They killed my grandmother, my mother, four sisters, and three cousins. Danilo Rodriguez is Rios Montt's lead defense attorney. Rodriguez tells me his client is not guilty of genocide. He says Rios Montt's troops were bent on destroying guerrillas, not an entire ethnic group. 
Atrocities were committed, Rodriguez says, but they don't add up to genocide. There were so many atrocities that when Riosmont was formally charged in January, it took the judge three hours to read them all. Yet few Guatemalans are paying much attention. Jose Leva sells greeting cards at the downtown Central Market. He's 27, and like most Guatemalans, he grew up long after Riosmont ruled the country. Leva knows almost nothing about the former dictator and says high school wasn't much help on that front. He says teachers focus on tamer subjects, like Guatemala's mountains and volcanoes, but provide little insight about the war. The Riosmont trial is a high-profile effort to examine that past. Yet the army still defends the scorched earth tactics of the 1980s as a necessary evil. And it still wields vast influence. The current president, Otto Perez, is a former general who served under Riosmont. Beyond the courtroom, one of the few places in Guatemala City where the war's atrocities are on vivid display is at the Foundation for Forensic Anthropologists, a group that excavates mass graves. Foundation member Isaac Rodriguez takes me inside. I don't know if we can define it as a museum, but it is more like an effort for the memory so the people don't forget what happened in this country. Rodriguez points to a wall decorated with military documents from the early 1980s that reveal the fate of political prisoners. Manuel Alfredo Baiza Molina, 300. Otto Leonel Juarez, 300. The 300 after each name, Rodriguez says, is military code, meaning that the prisoner was secretly executed. And you can see how big and powerful were the, the killing machines. A few blocks from the museum, I come across another reminder of Riosmont's rule. Engraved on stone pillars outside the National Cathedral are the names of thousands of people who were tortured, kidnapped, or killed during the early 1980s. It's a moving tribute, similar to the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington. But I'm the only one here. Cars zip past without stopping, and churchgoers stride into the cathedral, ignoring the endless list of victims. For the world, I'm John Otis, Guatemala City. Central America was once right at the top of the U.S. foreign policy agenda, but that was decades ago. Nowadays, American leaders from the president on down don't have much to say about the region or about Latin America as a whole. The world's Jason Margolis has more on that. Susan Kaufman Purcell directs the Center for Hemispheric Policy at the University of Miami. She has a lot to say about Latin America. But she doesn't have much to say about President Obama's foreign policy positions toward Latin America. Everyone that I talk to, including my Latin American friends and acquaintances, say, what do you think the Obama policy is toward Latin America? They don't know. Kaufman Purcell herself is somewhat stumped because she doesn't have a lot to go on. Look, the fact is that since 9-11, the attention of the United States has been overwhelmingly on the Middle East and on the fight against terrorism. Mark Jones, a political scientist at Rice University in Houston, says the current policy toward Latin America is one of benign neglect. This, though, has been an ongoing issue with all American presidents uh, going back 
perhaps to Ronald Reagan, who was the last U.S. president to have a real focus on Latin America. And for many Latin Americans, they would see that as something of a negative. Many argue that President Reagan's Central American policies directly and indirectly led to much bloodshed in places like El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. Since then, there have been some trade agreements and support for the fight against drug trafficking, but U.S. presidents have mostly tried not to interfere in Latin America. That's had some negative effects in the region, according to Mauricio Claver Caroni, director of the U.S.-Cuba Democracy PAC in Washington. He points to one example, a 2003 roundup of journalists and human rights activists in Cuba. That wave of arrest began the day that the U.S. invasion of Iraq began. And why did the Castro regime do that? Because he knew that the media and the international attention was going to be focused on Iraq. Claver Caroni says Latin America deserves more attention than that. I think we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Mitt Romney talks about doing just that. Here he is a few months ago in Miami. How is it that the whole world south of our border, which is growing and dynamic, receives so little attention from the United States of America? If I'm president, that will change, not just for their benefit, but for ours. He's offered few details on what he means by this, though. Manuel Carrao doesn't buy into speeches like this. Carrao is a news radio host who moved from Venezuela to Miami in 1996. He sees no differences between recent Republican and Democratic presidential administrations in their stances toward Latin America and Venezuela. They talk, talk, but they do nothing. Still, Carrao isn't all that bothered that American politicians aren't more engaged with his native country. It's not his top priority as an American voter. Same goes for most Latino voters I've spoken with over the past few months. When I've asked them what their top issues are, virtually everybody says the same thing. Number one, employment. The economy perhaps is number one. All across the country, Latinos are focused on on the exact same issues that everybody else, and that is jobs. That was Ernesto Ackerman in Miami, Fernando Romero in Las Vegas, and Carlos Duarte in Houston. People also tend to mention health care, education, and immigration reform. But nobody, and I mean nobody, brings up foreign policy, the only exceptions being Cuban-Americans in Miami. Overall, though, this apathy among Hispanic Americans also gives American politicians license to continue their benign neglect of Latin America— That could easily change, though, if, say, Hugo Chavez loses his battle with cancer. Susan Kaufman-Persil says Chavez's health is on the minds of American policymakers. Because instead of thinking, oh, my God, we're stuck with this guy forever, we might as well adapt, now they're thinking that maybe he's not here forever. Same goes for the Castro brothers in Cuba. Fidel's health is a mystery, and Raul is 81 years old. A changing of the guard in Cuba or Venezuela would almost certainly move Latin America up a few pegs on the U.S. foreign policy agenda. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Fidel Castro's health is a mystery. The old revolutionary is pretty cagey about his physical condition, but many say Fidel's latest symptoms say more about his mental health. This month, he started writing poetry, haiku specifically, and publishing it on Cuban government websites. He's used the 575-syllable meter, for example, to praise Che Guevara. Another poem slammed former Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping for inventing market socialism. Then there are his haikus extolling the virtues of growing mulberry trees or marveling at what yogis can do with the human body. Those left many Cubans scratching their heads. They wonder if El Comandante is losing his marbles. 
In some ways, though, it's a promising development that a man prone to six-hour speeches can actually edit himself back to Twitter-like brevity. And if brevity is, as they say, the soul of wit, Fidel Castro seems to fashion himself the poet laureate of Cuba, even if his audience these days is a relatively small one. Now, for our Friday night edition of the GeoQuiz, we touch down in a Southeast Asian city. There are six million people crowded into Vietnam's second largest city, and many have wrapped up their work week. On this hot and humid summer night, there is a cool breeze coming off of West Lake, one of several freshwater lakes scattered around this city. The city streets are buzzing with motorbikes. Merchants in the old quarter are hawking silk and jewelry. In the streetside cafes, cooks are chopping up veggies and steams rising from pots of rice noodle soup called pho. Can you name this Vietnamese cultural capital? The answer is just one minute away. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's Friday night somewhere on the planet. Heck, it's already Saturday in some parts of the world. But let's stay on Friday and what's happening in Vietnam's second largest city. Philip Martin with WGBH Radio is currently on assignment in Vietnam. Philip, tell us where you are right now. Well, right now I'm right uh, uh, around West Lake, the largest lake in the city. In fact, the city's built on, along this lake. And the lake is in what city? The lake is in Hanoi. It's uh, You have pagodas built along the lake, the presidential palace right nearby, and you have uh, ice cream shops and noodle places right along the lake. And people are out on a Friday night socializing along that lake. And, of course, Vietnamese cuisine is great. What have you tried so far worth writing home about? Uh, yeah, coming back from the northwest of the country uh, near uh, Viet Tri and Haijing, uh, stopped at a eating stall. All types of food was on the menu. I, I declined to have snake. Uh, it's just not my forte. What did it look uh, like? I did settle for, I'm not sure. I, I, I actually <laughs> didn't order it. And Instead, what I settled for was rabbit, a fresh killed chicken, bamboo uh, dipped in sesame and onions and garlic doused in uh, lots of salt. But there were snakes uh, that I saw in jars. Uh, I saw a cobra that was in a jar. They have it right near the counter. And uh, another type of snake, which I couldn't identify, but I know it was uh, poisonous. If it wasn't in a, in a jar, it would be dangerous. Now, was it the return trip from the country uh, that you got caught in the monsoon today? <laughs> I was actually uh, on my way to interview someone in the um, old city, was heading past the uh, presidential palace, and the sky opened up. Uh, luckily for me, that the uh, two guards, presidential guards, inside a booth invited me inside the booth with them uh, instead of standing under a tree. Under a tree and a monsoon with lightning in the air is not a good idea. So I stood inside the uh, the booth with these guys, uh, and they practiced their English. 
we talked about the uh, the storm. I noticed that this week, it was uh, nearly 50 years ago, that the United States first bombed Hanoi, Philip. Uh, are those days forgotten? You see reminders of it everywhere. I, I, I've actually spoken to a number of veterans, including some of the Nyong people when I was out in the northwest of the country uh, along these rice paddies. These people are farmers, and it's interesting to see some of these farmers with the flag of the uh, North Vietnamese Army from that period still hanging in their um, in their homes. Mm. But it made me think as I'm walking around Hanoi, this city was bombed time and time and time again by mm. U.S. forces. But as someone coming into Hanoi for a brief time and seeing uh, the lights of the city, thousands of people on motorbikes, uh, looking out at the lake and seeing neon everywhere and watching young people passing me by and nodding and, and, and giving me high fives, you would never know uh, that that was a part of this city's history. Yeah, you can really visualize a, a massive transformation. It's already nighttime there in Hanoi. What are you doing tonight, Philip? And don't tell me you're going to sleep. Uh, no, I'm going to walk along the lake again. There are lots of people out hanging out. Uh, it's almost like hanging out on stoops in New York City uh, on an August night or June night. That's what people are doing tonight. And I'm going to go over to uh, check that out and also head over to the, the old city. When I was there the other day, you could hear traditional Vietnamese uh, music uh, vying with local hip-hop music. And I'm just going to tune in. WGBH reporter Philip Martin speaking with us from Hanoi, the answer to our GeoQuiz today. Philip, thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. Be well. Finally today, we're going to hear music from the Indian city of Bangalore. The place is booming, and I don't just mean from all the outsourcing companies based there. The city's first heavy metal festival called Bangalore Open Air was held recently. Reporter Michael May met up with members of a local band with the perfect metal name, Eccentric Pendulum. To find Eccentric Pendulum in their natural habitat, take an auto rickshaw to the posh traffic choke neighborhood of Koramangla. Turn right at the Taco Bell and stop in front of the glass-encased office building across from the Baskin-Robbins. Follow the rumble into the tiny studio for rent where the band practices. Then push open the soundproof door. Vipas Venkatram is the drummer. He's got a tidy ponytail and sculpted goatee. He and the rest of the band are still on a high from playing Bangalore's first outdoor metal festival. Even the monsoon rains didn't dampen the crowd's spirits. They were getting drenched and they were like cheering us. They, they were having a ball. Eccentric Pendulum got hooked on Western music through MTV. They were all fans of the Backstreet Boys. But when they were around 13, kids at school started passing around heavy metal tapes from the U.S. Vibhas heard Iron Maiden and Metallica for the first time. The heavy distorted guitars, the whole aggression really caught my eye. But he and the others couldn't understand the words and they couldn't really connect with the headbanger culture. The way American kids are portrayed, you know, them being rebellious and all, I don't think that scene happens in India because they don't exactly know what to rebel against. Case in point, like most Indian 20-somethings, the members of Eccentric Pendulum still live with their parents. And aside from the long hair, they're just more like yuppies than rockers, because they are. The band includes an architect, a physicist, a computer animator... Singer Nikhil Vastade is the software engineer.
Vipas says the authorities have made it very difficult to play metal in Bangalore. Mainstream Indian culture sees heavy metal as a threat because anything Western is deemed with drugs and sex. Quite literally, the state government, led by the Hindu Nationalist Party BJP, has enforced a ban on live music at any establishment that serves alcohol on the grounds that rock and roll encourages prostitution. Last month, the state government banned all concerts at the palace grounds right in the heart of the city, where Bangalore open air was going to be held. The rationale was the concerts caused too much traffic. So the metal festival was moved to a college campus 15 miles outside of the city, which could take an hour or more in Bangalore traffic. And to top it off, the Indian government denied visas to the American headliner, Iced Earth. Vibhas says he heard it was payback because Bollywood icon Shah Rukh Khan was detained for two hours at the Newark airport in April. The end result is that Bangalore Open Air attracted only a couple thousand fans, less than half of what the promoters expected. Eccentric Pendulum has seen the other side. They've played several major heavy metal festivals in Europe, and they dream of seeking their fortune in the West. But for now, they meet a couple of times a week in their soundproof studio, where they can rock out in peace. The band is happening because, you know, we all love what we're doing in the band. So at least if, if we're not able to show it to others, we are doing it for ourselves. So if we can't play live music, we'd rather go to a studio, record it, and probably listen to it over a few drinks and, you know, be happy about what we've done. For The World, I'm Michael May. Cross between these tasteless years and eyes of random... You can hear one of Eccentric Pendulum songs at theworld.org. That'll do it for us today. Our So Not Metal theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.